there's something bigger than life about sports stars, but particularly about boxing stars. Like the, the intensity with which you step into the ring and you're fighting, it's you on your own. Welcome to Beyond the Lens, presented by Diesel Films. I am Seth Shapiro. And I'm AJ Speaks. When Chris Martin and Coldplay are your college roommates, you must have a charmed life. And for director Matt Whitecross, I'd say that's the case. After his award-winning doc, The Road to Guantanamo, which put him on the map, Whitecross has never looked back. After knocking out the rock doc genre with the brilliant Oasis, Supersonic, and a doc about his old buddies Coldplay, Whitecross turned his attention to a golden era in boxing with a film titled The Kings for Showtime, a four-hour masterpiece, which we discuss in detail today. As the son of political refugees, Matt explains why it was so important to him to blend the parallel stories of the four kings of boxing with the political leaders of that time. We discuss in detail the benefits of audio interviews versus on-camera interviews, and he walks us through the process he underwent in attempting to shine a bright new light on the often overlooked boxing era squeezed in between Muhammad Ali and Mike Tyson. Matt's unique style and perspective is ever-present in the film and throughout our entire conversation in this episode of Beyond the Lens, presented by Diesel Films. It's an honor to have our first Englishman join the pod. We welcome director extraordinaire Matt Whitecross to Beyond the Lens. Matt, how's it going? Really good, thanks. Thanks for having me on. Looking forward to talking to you, Matt. Matt, we like to break the pod into three acts, and the first act is your story. Where did you grow up, and where did your love of storytelling come from? Well, I grew up in Oxford in England, and it's quite a small, quite a sleepy town. It's a college town. My parents were from Argentina. And so they'd come over as refugees. So it was a slightly unusual version of growing up there. We had a, like a big group of Argentinians and Latin Americans. So we talk politics a lot. Yeah, from quite an early age, I, I just got obsessed with films. And I didn't really imagine there'd ever be any chance of me get, even getting onto a film set or being able to make a, you know, shoot a documentary. But I just felt like that's what I wanted to do. So it was pretty like quiet suburban existence. And I just watched film after film after film. It was kind of like my, my film school, just me and a couple of friends watching films at home. Um, but I never really thought I'd be able to turn it into a career. But we grabbed hold of my dad's video camera and we used to go and make dramas and like terrible horror films or action films and zero budget and people pretending to fall out of a car or out of a window or you know someone going around stalking all our friends. And then I went to uni and back then it wasn't really possible to go and study film you know, as an undergraduate course. So I just kept on making films while I was there and I was studying English because I felt like, well, I love reading and I love telling stories and filmmaking telling stories. And while I was there, I ended up being roommates and uh, sharing the same space as the band Coldplay. They weren't in a band then, they were still just starting out. And so I kind of, I, we just used to hang out and I used to film them. And we made like little kind of proto music videos together. And then I went off and started work as a runner. And I always had this ambition that I didn't I was going to make music videos, I was going to make documentaries, I was going to make dramas. And then little by little, you just go off and start making stuff. And I was lucky because the first job I ever landed was with Michael Winterbottom and his company. And I don't know if you guys know him, but he's a, he's a great British filmmaker. And I started working there doing everything and anything, making the tea, sending faxes back in the day because of the way that his mind works and he likes to give people opportunities. He was like, okay, well, what can you do? I can shoot, I can edit, I can write, I can do anything. I'll tap dance, whatever you want me to do. And so quite quickly, I started editing for him and then shooting for him. And then we started directing together. Well, hold up. You can't just drop Coldplay and then just walk away from that. That's not something you just drop. Oh yeah, that was my roommate. So you keep it moving. What was your big break? I know you talked about, you know, working with Michael. What is your, what was your big break in the industry? to get you into filmmaking? Yeah, I guess I didn't really know anyone who worked in film. Like my parents did completely different things. I didn't know anyone. I just, did, just didn't seem possible. But I was living in London and I spent like a whole summer ringing different like music video companies and film companies trying to get my foot in the door and I couldn't. And then a friend of a friend of a friend of a friend said, oh, they're making a film across town. Why don't you just go and just turn up and just see if they'll give you a, a, some, some kind of job? So I went there and worked there for a couple of days for free, just, you know, just bringing people coffees and I used to have to bring a beer for the director at the end of the day. And that was my job. And then I just heard, overheard someone saying, oh, there's a job going over at Michael Winterbottom's company, Revolution Films. So I rang them up. And I, and I went in and I did, you know, I, I went and kind of told them a bit about myself and I didn't get the job. And they, and so they were like, no, no, we're going to give it to someone else. And so I went on holiday and then two days into the holiday, I was in Italy with my family and, and they, they rang and they said, like, it's been a disaster. This guy turned up and he quit after two days. So I just caught the next flight home and, and I guess that was my big break. And then... With Michael, the, the amazing thing about him and his company was that they always offering you opportunities. And I had this idea, these guys ended up being released from the US Naval base in Guantanamo base and three British guys. And I'd read their story and um, 
and I said, look, you know, you should be making this film. I told Michael about it. And Michael was like, no, no, look, we can make it together. And he's, you know, he was a huge filmmaker. I thought the idea of him making a film with the runner is just like, it's never going to happen, but he, he stuck to it. So that that was my real break. So making that film with him. And then one thing led to the another. Then once you've got one under your belt, then people start to trust you. That's awesome. Circling back to Coldplay, did you know that they would be worldwide superstars at that time? It's funny. I mean, I don't know how it is for you guys, but it's like, you know, growing up with people around you who are incredibly talented. Like I had one guy who was a friend who was a writer. And then there's another friend of mine who was wanting to make films, another one who was a musician. And there were loads of bands that first year. And Coldplay were just one of them. And they, I thought they were amazing. But then I thought everyone was amazing. And I was like, we're going to go and take over the world. You know, you have that kind of confidence as a kid where you're just like, yeah, like, why not? But then then you kind of see, you hear all the, the horror stories of how the industry works. And I was like, well, you know, I think that music's great, but does anyone else, is anyone else going to care? You know, I don't even know how you get a song on the radio, but they were very disciplined about it. So they were, they had like a master plan. They drew on the wall and they were like, this is how we do it. They had books on like how you make it in the music business. They would sit there reading, going, okay, this is what you do. We need a manager. Okay, our friend's going to be a manager, right? We need to contact all the top record labels. We're going to do EMI because Parlophone was the Beatles, right? So we want to be the next Beatles. It was all like that. So they they had a plan. You know, they they it wasn't like they just kind of turned up and, and winged it. They were really determined. But yeah, but there's always a, the other little voice in your head is going like, who are we kidding? No one, you know, you can't you can't become you two. You can't become the Rolling Stones. It's never going to happen. But I, you know, I think there's something about Chris. He just has this determination. He had this confidence to succeed. There's one clip in the film that we made where I was filming him and they just had like the most disastrous gig they'd ever done, like ever in the, in the history of humanity. Like, so there was me and another of our best friends who we were the roadies and we drove them to this tiny gig in the middle of nowhere. There was a farming college and they were supposed to be on at six o'clock before the main band. Then it was seven o'clock, then it was eight, then it was nine. And they finally went on stage about one in the morning. There was no audience. The only audience was me and this friend of mine. And it was us like applauding. And as they came off stage Chris was like we're going to be the biggest band in the world and to have that confidence when you have a disaster like that and still think you're going to be the biggest band in the world is, is amazing like I don't know where it comes from but that's I guess that's the de determination and that's the confidence you need and that's what makes you great right I think so and I think you see it in sports heroes you see it in film stars you know it's that thing it's like I, and it's a special magic ingredient and you, yeah. the, the amount of times you see people who are great at what they do, but they just don't have that missing ingredient and you can't, you can't quantify it. You can't really understand what it is, but you see it, you know, you know it when you see it. Now you've worked with several, you worked with Coldplay, you worked with Oasis. What was that experience like? Oasis was amazing. They have reputations, right? So they, so I was a little bit nervous going in. I was like, you know, they don't suffer fools gladly. And I was terrified that we were going, I was a huge fan of theirs growing up. You know, that was my music and that was my band growing up. So I, and I'd seen them at some early gigs and, and then when they got, got huge and I was thinking, you know, um, we might sit down and five seconds into the first interview, they just, they, you realize they just don't, you don't gel, they don't click or they're, they're not interested, but they were amazing. You know, people say, don't meet your heroes. But sometimes it just works. And um, and they were very humble coming into it. You know, I think sometimes bands, especially when they, you know, they were a huge band, especially in Britain. And there was a danger we could go into the first interview and they'd just be like, yeah, okay, well, I'll give you a couple of hours and that's it. Each brother gave us 20 hours of interviews, it was, which was amazing. And even at the end of that process, they were like, let's keep going. You know, like we've only started, like we've just kind of skimmed the surface. So I think it was down to the two of them would still be doing the interviews. Yeah, it was amazing. It was it was a funny process because they're very, obviously very different. I mean, it's not like they're best friends right now, but it was really bad when we started doing the film. So there was always that thing about like, well, if one of them says yes, probably the other one will say no. So you know you're just having to try and be honest and and hope that everyone can trust you and i didn't have a relationship with them so chris martin is friends with noel gallagher i had other friends of friends who were friends with liam and yeah you never know it was funny as soon as we sat down and started talking you know liam was like this is great this is the therapy i've never had and it all comes out and they're very different you know noel is someone who has like these anecdotes. He's very much like someone, he, he kind of studied music history growing up. Like he read every book there was on every single rock star. And Liam is someone who's much more in the moment and he'll just tell you whatever's there and, and he can contradict himself three times in the same sentence, but still mean it in the same same moment. And the other thing I think that they share in common with Chris is they're just very, very, very funny people. And so I spent most of my time just laughing. You know, we were talking about all this stuff. The great thing about them is they're just like barroom raconteurs. You can sit there and I would ask some of the sessions, I would sit down and just ask my first question. And then three hours later, I'd be like, right, I guess we better wrap it up. I didn't, I didn't even get a word in edgeways, but it was all gold. So I didn't really mind. It was like, we were getting enough. Is that a love-hate relationship? 
But, well, I love hate relationships between the brothers, definitely. I mean, I think, you know, people know about all the conflicts and the, and the problems. But I think what even they had probably forgotten was all the good times. And what was lovely for me as a big fan was to sit down on that first session. And I think Noel came in for the first day and he was talking. And the first thing is, you know, obviously there's a little bit of just feeling each other out, trying to figure out what we're doing. And at the end of the session, I was like, is it OK if I just show you some videos we've got? We've got all these this old footage we've been given, which is stuff that probably you, you've never even seen that like one of the guys in their team had filmed. No, 20 years before and he started watching it and you could see the love and the companionship between and the vibe between the two brothers in the video and it was really funny because I, I mean maybe I was imagining it but I felt like Noel just softened and he was kind of smiling and he was back in the room in that moment and then exactly the same process with Liam and I think there is a lot of love there and what I was surprised by was that how generous they were with each other. Noel would say like, and there's a passage in the film where he, he sort of talks about like, Liam was cooler than me and he was better looking than me and he dressed better than me and he had this amazing voice. He had like the charisma. If we're talking about that, that X factor, whatever it is that we were saying before that Chris has, and it's like Liam has it, he's a front man. And that's, you can't just, you can't fake it. You either have it or you don't. And Liam said the same thing about Noel. You know, I think in reality, he would have wanted to be able to write those songs and Noel would have wanted to be able to front the band in the way that Liam did. I wanted to ask you about that film. How did you link with James Gay Reese of Senna and Amy fame? Well, so I, I had a relationship with Asif Kapadia, who's, who's the director of Senna and, and Amy and Diego Maradona. And he's such a lovely guy. I mean, he actually lives just down the road from me here. And I see him most mornings taking his kids to school. The first short film I ever made, I made this tiny little film about refugees in London. And uh, and it got shown at this festival, film festival, and it was in competition. He was one of the judges. He was sat in the row in front of me. And then I think at that point, he'd only made one film, which is The Warrior which I'd seen at the London Film Festival and I was blown away by it. Like, it's a, a fantastic, it's an incredible film. So he was sat in there and I was a little bit like, wow, you know, he's, he's there's someone who's, who's made this incredible film in front of me. And then we were, we, you know, they did, they read out the announcements and I think we got the third prize. There was like three prizes they were announcing. And then he turned around and he was like, you're Matt, aren't you? He said, you should have won. I voted for you. <laughs> and he was so sweet. Then he introduced me to his whole team and his composer and he was like, look, anything I can do to help then then you know, because I know you're just starting out. So every so often I would see him and he was always very sweet. And then I think he was in line to direct Supersonic, but he was in the middle of doing Amy. And I think for him, it was like, he likes to do one thing at a time. And the idea of doing two music films back to back, I think Amy, the way that he tends to work, I tend to work quite quickly. He, I think he spent five or six years on Amy and five or six years on Senna. And it, and it shows like those films are incredible. They're like masterpieces. So that's his process. And um, so he contacted me with James through another friend of mine who was the, the main producer, Simon Halfon. I was like a director for hire and I was very much like came on board saying, look, I'm a fan, but I don't really know what this project is. Like it's your project. But it turned out that no one really knew what it was. They knew they had this opportunity, but they didn't know. They knew that it was like the 20th anniversary of, of these massive gigs, that all these anniversaries were coming up for the band and that Noel wanted to do something. And that was as far as the conversation had gone. So I thought like, this, there's no way this film will ever happen. Like, there's no way on the planet that Liam and Noel will ever agree to be in the same room or even agree to be in the same film. But I'd never met them. So I thought, okay, fine. Well, I'll turn up for the meeting. So I met Noel in, in his management's uh, office and, and I just thought like, I'll shake his hand and then the film will, will disappear. But he was like, what's this film you want to make? <laughs> I didn't really have a very good answer for it, but I just, I was like, well, I don't know. I started kind of brainstorming and saying, well, isn't it the early years that's interesting about most bands? And then all bands kind of tend, you know, every story becomes the same story right it's like touring and recording and falling out with each other and taking too many drugs and sleeping with each other's wives whatever it is that bands do but it's the beginning that's really interesting it's the ascent and their ascent you know there's not you can't really compare it to anyone else in, in british music history i don't think apart from the beatles it really was that quick and that big so that was what was interesting for me and he was like okay great and then we had to convince liam and i think i can't quite remember what happened but i think someone someone one of the guys who was financing the film just bumped into his brother and told him we were making the film and of course we hadn't had a chance to reach out to him so then he of course he was he was pissed so then we got to a point where luckily we knew enough people in between that we managed to just go for a coffee with him and I just said, look, just trust us. You know, we're, we're decent people. We're going to try and we'll tell a story that's fair. It's not going to be your story or his story. It's going to try and be even handed. And you know, bless him. He, he said, OK, fine, I'm, I'm, I'm in. And then it took a while for everyone just to agree. And I, I don't know, like all, all the usual wrangling of paperwork that I'm not even involved in. But yeah, I never until the first day when we were actually started editing, I never thought it would happen. Any chance for uh, new music from Oasis? I would love that. I would. I mean, I would love the band to get back together. I think the tricky thing is, it's like the incentives probably don't yet outweigh all the negatives. It's like they, they still seem to, there's a lot of friction there. And they're both doing really well in their solo careers. And I think the way that Noel always talked about it, when I, I asked him the same question when we were, we were doing the interviews, and I think his thing was like, look, 
we did it. Like a lot of bands, you see it with a lot of these bands who reform from everyone from, you know, the Sex Pistols to, to everyone else. They come back because they never really got a, a chance to do it the first time around. I mean, these amazing bands like the yeah, the Pistols or uh, Stone Roses, they came back because the love was there, but they, they got screwed the first time when they were small and they never managed to, to get that kind of attention. With Oasis, like they, they did those massive gigs early on. And so I, I don't know, I kind of, I hope that, you know, the next few years somehow they'll just end up in each other's orbit again. It's tricky though, because in the case of the Stone Roses, it took the death of one of their mothers, Manny's uh, mother, who then they all kind of came together. You know, I hope it's not something as serious as that, because I think it's like, you know, we all know life is short. You wouldn't want to just get together just for the sake of getting together. But I think the the love is there and the fans are super keen. It would be, I mean, it would be huge. It would be extraordinary, but there's no point in just doing it for the sake of doing it, right? You mentioned the James Gay Reese process, and that could take five to six years. I'm curious how you developed your process and what that is. Yeah, I, I think the process is for me. It seems to be different on each uh, project. It kind of depends on on you know. So I've I've mostly done dramas in the past, and then in the last few years since Supersonic, kind of by mistake, I've ended up doing more documentaries. What I did from the beginning on the documentary, so we did so with Michael, we made a film called Road to Guantanamo. We had access to these three guys. We were you know we we knew that it was going to be sensitive. They'd been imprisoned. You know, there's a lot of semantics that goes into this, but you know, effectively they've been tortured in inside the the naval base, and so you had to tread very softly. And so what I, what I did is I went to live with them for a couple of weeks. We rented a house near where my parents live and we just hung out and I just set up a camera and we just talk every day. And that was the process. And we got really amazing stuff. And then later on, we were like, okay, well now we'll do the talking heads. And for me, it was, you know, it's tricky because suddenly you've got lights in there. You've got three cameras running. There's tension. It's suddenly it's, it stops being a kind of genuine recounting of what happened. And it's kind of a performance in some way, even when they're talking, what they're saying is, is right. And it was making anything up, but it's just different. You know, and as soon as you put a camera into any situation, the room changes. And we had the same thing on the Coldplay film when there were situations where they were hanging, you know, they're, they're recording with Noel Gallagher, recording with Beyonce and putting a film crew in there just changes everything. But if you just hand someone a phone and say, can you just film this? Then everyone's relaxed, everyone's themselves. They just, they're not changing. So the process has been from quite early on is to do audio interviews at the beginning and then to see further on, it's like, okay, well, do, what else do we need? Do we need talking heads? Because that for me always got the most honest answers. And and the way that, you know, like you you get, I think that's why podcasts and radio is so, still so popular because there's an intimacy to it and a kind of, and people are relaxed in a way that you never are when you're in a studio and you've got a camera pointing in your face and you're worried about, what your hair looks like and and you people start to sweat and people you know the cameras are moving around and people are talking and it suddenly it becomes a different kind of atmosphere we just tend to on every project just to do a lot of research really immerse yourself in it and go go to school in it and that's you know whether it's music or it's sport or it's film or whatever you're doing in politics and then the main thing i think is just to gain the trust of the people you're making the film with so if it's documentaries or if it's you know drama and then then with the actors it's just to try and build some kind of rapport now i think for me the more you do it, then you have a, a kind of you have a reputation and you have films you made in the past that people start to trust you more and it becomes easier. I know that, you know, the first few times when I was on a film set, you know, you're in your 20s and people are like, who's this kid in the corner? You know, you're, you're the youngest person there. And inevitably, like directors, just by the nature of being director, you're the least experienced person because, you know, the camera guy goes from film to film to film and the sound person the same and everyone else just moves on and they have the weekend off and then they start again. Whereas, you know, if you're a director, you might spend five years trying to make your first film and then you get to make it and then might be another two years to your next film. So it's just by the nature of it, it's like you don't have that experience on the ground. But as you get more things under your belt, it becomes it becomes easier. I think I just get used to the fact that it all feels like a disaster and then you go, it's okay, it's always gonna feel like a disaster. <laughs> That's part of the process. And you don't know what you're doing and you feel like a fraud and then, you know, like a week into the production, like, okay, no, no, it's all right, it's fine, it's gonna be all right. Let's get into act two and dive into the epic four part docu-series for Showtime titled The Kings which documents a very important transition in boxing from Muhammad Ali to four of the best middleweights we have ever seen. Sugar Ray Leonard, Marvelous Marvin Hagler, Hands of Stone, Roberto Duran, and the hitman, Thomas Hearns. How did this film get started and how did you get involved with it? Yeah, so again, um, this was not my project. Like I've, we normally I develop my own projects with my producer Fiona Nielsen and, and we've got like a back catalogue of things we were trying to get up and running and we came really close on another drama and a few things were lined up and then James Gay Reese and Asif came back a few times and they were doing more sports documentaries. They were doing Diego Maradona and they'd, they'd do um, the Netflix show, The Drive to Survive. So they were doing more of that kind of stuff and they came to me a few times and each time I was like, it's not like, it sounds like a great show or it sounds like a great film, but it doesn't feel right for me. You really like, if you're going to spend 
two years of your life or three years of your life doing something, you really need to love it. And even though I could see that the access they were getting was incredible. It's like every time you do one film, you're not doing another two or three films. And it was funny, it became like a running joke. James kept on coming back to me with new things. And I was like, ah, it's great, but it's, oh, I don't know if it's what I want to do. And each of his emails or messages was getting more and more passive aggressive. And he sent me this quite bitchy email tongue in cheek kind of saying well i know you don't want to work with this i know this and that but we have access to this this amazing story uh we think we've got the boxers on board we think showtime are on board and these guys are for the greatest boxers of all time they're like they're up there with the greats but for whatever reason maybe it's because they're they're lighter weight classes their story hasn't been told the way it deserves to be told like you know i mean it's been told in book form and there have been documentaries made but never in the way that we think the, the subject matter deserves. And so I started reading about them. And I obviously I knew them kind of, like they were in the back of my mind. Sugar Ray Leonard, like I'm sure there's probably like tribes in the Amazon who know who Sugar Ray Leonard is. But then the other three, I was like, yeah, yeah, kind of. I was pretty young when this was all happening. But then I started to read up on it. And I was like, this, this story is amazing. Like even if you take the boxing out of the story, then it's still an incredible story. Their lives are amazing. And what they achieved was amazing. And I felt the same about the music films that I worked on that, even if you extract the music, does it still work? Is there enough going on? Like in the case of Oasis, like it's these two brothers. And if they've been you know, footballers or if they've been astronauts, that tension and the love and the tension between them is still, you know, that would make a great story. And so I was like, look, I'm in. This, is, this sounds amazing. And so we went to see Showtime in the States and they were lovely. You know, I think I've had all kinds of experiences in the past, but they were just like, look, you guys are grownups. We love the things that you you do. Just get on with it. Uh, we'll see you when you're done, <laughs> which is amazing. And then they popped over us at one point I think this is all pre-COVID. So yeah, we were kind of like five months into the process and they came over, Vinny and Steven, and, and watched a rough cut of the first episode. At that point, we were only doing three episodes and talking about process, my process is like the first cut of anything is really long. Like the first cut of the Oasis film, we were aiming for 90 minutes and the first cut was seven hours long. On The yeah. Kings, the first <laughs> cut, I think of episode one was two and a half hours. And so we got about an hour into it. And they went, whoa, 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 stop, stop, stop. Okay. They were only supposed to be in town for a day. So they were like, look, we can't watch the whole three hours of, of episode one, but how are you going to cut this down? Because they were like, all the bits that we like are all the asides and the bits where you suddenly go, you know, there was a whole section in episode one, which went into the history of mafia involvement in uh, in boxing in the time of Ali and so on and, and Liston. And then there were, you know, we went into another bit, which was all about Ray Arcel and, and all the trainers. And I was like, well, to be honest, I, I don't know, because this is the stuff that I love, but I don't. I don't know how we do it because you can't squeeze everything in. You know, probably it's going to end up on the cutting room floor. And I remember I think Vinny just was like, well, we just need to give you more time and money, don't we? Which is amazing. <laughs> I've never heard that before. I don't expect I'll ever hear it again. But it was, yeah, it was fantastic. And then, and then they did the same thing. So they kind of, James and Fiona went off and, and they figured it out. And so we got four episodes instead of three. And for me, that was part of the challenge. It's like, it felt like the pitch initially from James and from us was that we were going to try and tell the story behind the boxes as well. We wanted to tell the story of that time because they, they felt like their stories and i think this is probably true of a lot of boxing is that there's something about the ring that lends itself to a kind of metaphorical exploration of what's going on around it like it, everything in the ring it's two people going in there and it's life and death and it really is especially back in that era i think it was like the fates of nations seemed to hang in the balance when two of those fighters went into the ring and they would go and meet the president afterwards or they would you know like the presidential panamanian plane would be sent over to pick up roberto duran and to keep it waiting for two weeks because in the in the airport because he was having too good a time in new york partying so this is crazy like these guys are like bigger than presidents bigger than political leaders so for me it felt like we need to tell the backdrop as well but that was the challenge it was like well how do you tell the story of society and politics and not lose sight of the guys who, who the film is really about so then take us into that how did you do that what was the next step once they tell you hey you have an extra hour i'm sure that changed what you had already developed you had to cut out a lot of things and then you had these four dynamic personalities right and there's so much to each of their story and you chose to tell it in a different way and maybe not in the biographical way that we both thought, how did you break all that down and how did you determine that? Yeah, it was tricky. It was the it was the trickiest project I think I've ever worked on in terms of just the planning and the complexity of it. Because, you know, not like when we're dealing with a band, it's a band. And yeah, there might be five people in the band, but it's kind of the same story. Whereas we had four guys, plus their families, plus their rivals, plus their backdrop, trying to explain the time. Then we had the the leaders, the political leaders behind them. In a way, to try and explain who the four kings were, you have to explain about the end of Ali and then to explain about how 
that era finishes, you've got to explain Tyson and come into all of that. And then you've got Panamanian history. So there's a lot to get in there. The great thing that we had on this project was that, so James and Asif, their process, the procedure is that they spend a lot of time up front just planning it. And so they gave me, I think, well, we had, in theory, we had like six months of research before we even started editing. Thing is, because my background is editing anyway, after a while, I just got bored and I started editing anyway, just by myself, because I was like, I go crazy. Like I'd read like 400 books and I've spoken to like 400 people and I couldn't remember some of the stuff that I'd written down at the beginning. I was going through my notebooks. I was like, oh, no, it's like someone else wrote this stuff. So at a certain point, I, I just needed to start cutting it. But the process really was, we started editing. We knew what the key moments were. First of all, you just get all the archive in, you see if there's any footage to try and visually express any of those bits. And luckily, I think a lot of the moments that we thought were important, suddenly the archive team would find something incredible, like Ali commentating and basically introducing Sugar Ray Leonard, even though he'd never met him before. So you really have the baton being passed from one boxer to the next, one generation to the next. So that was amazing. And I think once we started, so I, I wrote out a document, which is about, I guess, probably like 50, 60 pages long, as if we were making a, a drama and saying, okay, scene one, we're with Roberto Duran. He's about to go out and fight his final fight against Sugar Ray Leonard. He's thinking about the first fight. Then he steps out into the ring. Suddenly we flash back to the first fight between the two of them. And so we tried out a lot of these techniques Sometimes I think I was being a little bit too clever and it was just confusing everyone because everyone's like, hang on, which era are we in? We're in the, the, suddenly we're in the 60s and then we're in the future and then we're in the past. So we had to kind of calm it down a little bit towards the end. It was that document, which I've never had a chance to do before. And it was, it was fantastic because we always had like a blueprint we could go back to whenever we got a bit lost. So, you know, those detective films where, you know, the detective has like a million different things or maybe like the serial killer in seven has like a million different things on his walls and like things connecting everything and graffiti so the edit started to look like that on one side we'd have all the themes and then we'd have all the events and then we'd have another bit about how we could link all these different ideas up and we'd have one wall would be politics and another wall would be something else and then it was just a question of trying to make all those different ideas feel like one story instead of like a hundred stories i think that was the hardest thing and we had a screening for some financiers quite early, well not financiers like the, the sales agents early on and it was more for us just to get a sense of is it working or not and it was pretty clear when we were watching it was like it felt like we were, had two different documentaries the bits where we suddenly go okay boxing and now into some like a, something else and not like both for me like both stories were great like they were both interesting but they just didn't quite feel like the same story and so then that's what we worked hardest on was trying to make the connections between like the foreground story and the background story the archive footage was incredible was that already sourced before you started editing or did some of that gold come in during the editing process? Yeah, we mostly afterwards. So what I ended up, I mean, God bless YouTube and God bless all the fans out there who just find stuff because, you know, this is, uh, this is not what archivists love, but I would just get on YouTube every single day. And this was before anyone even came aboard and just download all these different clips that people had. And you would find gold dust that you know some some super fan had obviously taped something off hbo 20 years before or, or you know you'd find these old little film clips so there was a bit of that and then hannah who's our first researcher who had done uh coldplay in the oasis films she just went off and just rang everyone and she's like yeah you know, she it is like detective work and you did ring she'd ring all the old gyms and speak to someone else who then put her in touch with someone else and then we had Prue who was a who's an amazing archivist you have to think laterally I think so she was like okay well Ray Arcel is one of our key figures he's you know he's passed away sadly so like how can we get him to talk have his voice in the film and a lot of the news clips that still survive they're like you know you get the soundbite you get the 15 second soundbite and normally there's music in the background so you can't really use it but then she rang up uh, I think the Jewish Museum in New York and just said, is there any chance you happen to have anything? And they had all these reel-to-reel tapes of Ray Arcel when he was just telling his story to a biographer, which no one had ever heard since they'd been made. I don't think it ever turned into a book. So we grabbed all that. And it was like having Ray Arcel suddenly in the room with us. And like a lot of things like that, but it's funny because often it comes very late in the day. What you end up doing is sometimes because we did audio interviews with the boxers, you'd have these bits where it's just like blank screen, nothing happening, but this great anecdote. And then it's like, okay, well, do we need to animate it? Are we going to do this with photos? How, you know, how are we going to do this? And luckily in most cases, some great archive would come in. Like it was handed down from God because it was like, right, we we're going to have to cut this moment. And then like the next day the archive turns up. So the benefit of having a great archive team. Very impressive. Great job to them. Kudos. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's, it was nice. We all worked in the same office. So at least you could kind of, you know, like most directors, I'm a, I'm a complete pain in the ass. And I was sitting there going, come on, there's got to be something out there. And so every day they'd have to go out. And the nice thing is if you can find a great piece of archive, it might actually push the story in a way you weren't expecting. You know, you just think, okay, well, that's so maybe we don't have the other anecdote. We, we push it in this direction instead. 
you mentioned the background story and one of the stories that you you did or throughout the whole film was you blended politics with boxing you went back to carter you went back to reagan and i'll be honest at first i didn't follow it i didn't know where you were going with this and i was like man this is like switching channels like i was trying to figure out you know where we were going but over time you started to blend that story. Now, recognizing that you're the son of a political refugees, I'm sure you talked about politics growing up. How much did that play in you including that in this film and just the importance of it to you to make that symbiotic relationship, if you will? Yeah, well, no, th thanks. I mean, I think that is exactly right, that it's it, it came about from, like politics was just what we talked about at the dinner table. And it's funny because growing up in somewhere stable and you know, with the conservative with a small C like England, you know, I think for most of my friends, it's like politics was like, it's boring. It doesn't, it doesn't affect me. And it only takes the last five, six years in, you know, in the US, in the in the UK to see that politics does affect everything that we do. You know, we're, our lives, whether we like them or not, everything we do is political. You know, boxing is political. I mean, for me, it was like the most obvious example is Roberto Duran. So he is someone who's embedded in, in Panama. He is like a political figure. And just by nature of being a successful boxer, he was this inspirational symbol for Latin America, not just for Panama, but for Latin America. So there was this, and then it was like, okay, well then what does it mean? So when these two fighters go in, why is it that these fights mean so much to people? Well, it's when Leonard goes in against Duran, it's not just one guy going in against another guy, it's two countries at war. And so it becomes a bigger picture. And I don't think you can really understand what's at stake in, in the ring without then looking at the bigger picture. Yeah, there was a danger. I mean, I'm sure, you know, I was looking on Twitter from time to time. I try not to do too much like looking into whether people like things or not, because you only believe the bad stuff. But, you know, there's some people who are like, look, shut up about politics. Let's talk about boxing. Let's talk about sport, which I get. I mean, we knew it was a danger. It's like it's never going to be everyone's cup of tea. But on the other hand, for me, it's like, you know, we go full circle. So when in the first fight, we have this whole moment where we, we're talking about Duran. Duran's going into this. We only just met Duran. And then we go into the history of uh, US involvement in the Panama in Panama and Panama Canal. And then it goes full circle. By the end of the final fight, you know, a week later, the US invades Panama and our Noriega and so on. So it feels like that that is, it doesn't feel like too much of a reach for me that we're taught, it's all one story. For example, like one of the guys who ended up almost being like an unofficial narrator for us, Teddy Atlas, we brought him in really to talk about just training and a bit, little bit about boxing corruption because he's one of those guys who's is not afraid of saying what he thinks, which isn't the case with everyone. And so he came in just for an hour in between two other interviewees and he was so amazing and he was so, for me, I know he's apparently he's quite a controversial figure, but he was so mesmerizing. I love the way he speaks and his passion. I was like, look, we've got to get you back. But I remember he said one thing in the first minute I met him, he was like, boxing is a metaphor for life. You know, everyone's fighting for something. I was like, that's great. And I felt like, okay, well, maybe we can use moments the way we step out of the storyline and just talk about now what is boxing? Why do people fight? Why do we, what does it mean? If boxing were just boxing and it was just about the skill with which someone, now one human being broke down another human being, I don't think that would be enough. I think it symbolizes, and certainly in that era, it symbolized more than that. I'll tell you what, two things there. I think at the end, I just had to be patient. And once you blended it all together, it was like, oh man, this was a masterpiece. And then the second part of that was Teddy. He was tremendous. I felt like he was reading a script. And I know you <laughs> said you had him for an hour. Did you bring him back? And what was that process like when you did bring him back? Yeah, you're right. I mean, T Teddy has got like, he speaks with the authority of like an Old Testament prophet or something. It's amazing. He's got this gravelly voice. And immediately I'm like, I'm, I'm with him. Yeah, he came in for an hour. And at the end of the, the hour, the next guy came in and I was like, Teddy, I, I feel like, you know, I, I want to spend like six days with you. I don't, I we barely scratched the surface what I know you've got to, to talk about. He was like, no, well, you know, I normally just do it in one. And his daughter had just had a baby the day before. So he's like, I need to get back to my family. And I said, Look, like, no pressure. But the next time I'm, I'm in town, is there any chance, you know, we'll make it easier, just be like another hour, two hours or something. I'll ask you a couple more questions. He's like, yeah, 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 we'll see what we can do. So about a month later, um, he said, look, the easiest thing is just come over to my house. And I think he expected probably like another like half hour, like here's some three more sound bites we need. <laughs> and bless him, after seven hours, I was still there. <laughs> and I was going, I've got one more. And he was not feeling, he was under the weather and he wasn't feeling well. And he was like, he was like, look, you've got to do your thing. He's so sweet and hospitable and, and he's done publicity for us on this thing. So he was amazing. For me, it was like, there's something bigger than life about sports stars, but particularly about boxing stars. Like the, the intensity with which you step into the ring and you're fighting, it's you on your own. And that definitely feels like it has connections to all of us. You know, everyone's had struggles in their life no matter who you are. And there's, you know, political fights, but there's kind of the fights that, that people have. That's that's why we watch it, right? And I know it's a controversial sport and the people are worried about the side effects and so on. And then all of that is true. 
but there's still something mesmerizing about it. And it's not just the skill and the athleticism. There's, there's, there's more to it than that for me. So we started putting all this stuff into the show and I kept on thinking, well, you know, at some point, maybe Showtime are going to say, look, stop yakking and get back to the boxing. But they never did. They kind of encouraged us to do more of that. And Teddy was fantastic. We also, um, Bonnie Greer, who lives in London, I've admired her for a long time. And I just happened to catch her talking about boxing one night on the radio. I was like, oh, okay, maybe she'd be interesting. And she was great. Again, she speaks with such kind of conviction. I never really wanted to have a narrator, but when people speak that spontaneously, it's it's amazing. Yeah, someone else was saying, so who wrote the script for Teddy? I like, no, that's just how Teddy speaks. <laughs> that's just Teddy. Yeah, I'd love to take credit for that. Yeah, I found her voice also, I felt like was narration. It was just like you said, powerful. And you just followed it. And I'm like, man, it sounds like it's written, but two good choices. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think we were lucky as well, because you never know, you could catch people on a bad day. But that I think it's a little bit like we were saying before, when you're working with actors, or you're working with real life people, you know, talking about documentaries, it's just hopefully creating some kind of atmosphere where they can just do their thing. So as much as possible, just stay out of the way. It's like people always say it's in the casting with actors. And I think it's the same with contributors. It's like it's in the casting and making people feel comfortable. And then they just just let them do their thing. AJ and I always say a great documentary for us is when we learn something new. So for me, I love to learn about whether it's U.S. history, world history, through the vessel of sports. It's such a great way for me to learn about all these different political changes, wars, you know, all sorts of stuff through that vessel of sports. I think it's fantastic. The way you Thank did you. that was just awesome. Speaking of Teddy, when you work with James and Asif, is the directive, this is the way we're doing documentaries. It's Senna, it's Amy, like you did Oasis, you know, the off-camera interviews. Sometimes I feel like you have someone like Teddy who is so evocative. It's fun to see him on camera doing his thing. Obviously, you guys have a style, but I'm wondering, is that the directive when working with that team? No, uh, not necessarily, although you're right. It did become a kind of house style, I think, within the company. So they just did a TV show called 71 and asked if he was kind of the over, overall director, or supervising director. I don't know what the official title was. And they did something similar with that. With supersonic it was funny because noel said look what i just i don't want this to be like day one he kind of said like i don't want this to be a bunch of like old rock stars with gray hair sitting in, in armchairs talking about the good times and so i was like well let's try not to show you now but if we have to then we have like the you know let's come back at the end if we feel like there's big gaps where we need to see someone i think for me like talking heads it's tricky because I, you know, I love seeing the expression on people's faces. I just saw the new Stephen Queen documentary that came out. It's called Uprising, which is amazing. And that relies a lot on the emotion. You see these people going through this, this trauma. For us, you know, I knew with Supersonic, it wasn't really going to be that kind of story. Like I knew that this wasn't, we were never going to have an Oprah moment where, you know, Noel broke down in tears and suddenly revealed, you know, that he'd, he'd loved his brother all these years. It wasn't really that kind of vibe. And even though they talk about some quite dark stuff, you know, they're quite macho men who's never going to, they're, they're never going to have a moment where they betray that. And I think with the, with the boxing, the archive was so good, like you said, that I felt like if we suddenly cut to them now, particularly, you know, when you look at Tommy, you look at Roberta, they really have changed so much. And I kind of wanted to remember them in their prime. We're doing a show about the Paralympics at the moment. Then because it's so emotional and because you really want to see these guys as they are now and it's all happening in real time, then we were like, okay, we will have talking heads. Talking heads, sometimes it's like you start asking questions like, well, why have they put them in some weird kind of abstract space? Or, you know, why are they in a warehouse? I start asking, you know, we're in a, in a hotel room or something. I start asking more questions. But I think in the case of the Paralympians, it's like they're so open in a way that a lot of sports stars are much more guarded. And they're so pleased finally getting to get some screen time that it's brilliant. Like, I love seeing them on screen. But I, I don't know, it kind of depends on the project but yeah they, they didn't um you know i think with asif and with um james they would like they were open to doing whatever it just felt right for those two things and the process always tended to be that we do the audio interviews first and then further down the line if we feel like we need talking heads then we will it never felt like that we were missing anything from them I agree. I thought it worked because you look at these guys as bigger than life and now you see them older if you bring them on camera. But when you're just listening to their voices, I found myself just really listening to what they were saying. So that leads me to my question to you when you sat down with these four giants. What was that experience like for you, it being someone that's an outsider from boxing and sitting down with them? I know you've done your research. I know you read all the autobiographies. You did everything. But what was that experience like for you? Well, the experience of interviewing them was, was amazing. I mean, we we only interviewed in the end. We interviewed Duran and uh, Tommy. We didn't interview Ray Leonard and we didn't interview Marvin, although I thought we, we almost did at two points. So Ray was, when we went in for the first meeting with Showtime, they were like, look, Ray is great. He's a friend. He'll just, don't worry about Ray. Just uh, like name a time and a place. I'm sure we can make that happen. But 
it's a bit like with the two brothers in Oasis. They're like, if Ray says yes, then I'm pretty sure Marvin will say no and vice versa. So just bear that in mind. So you're like, oh God, okay. So we just asked everyone. I was like, look, I'd rather be upfront and, and ask everyone. And Roberto, you know, there's always uh, that slight hesitancy up front where up front where it's like, okay, who do you go through? Because someone says, oh, you got to go through the friend. No, you got to go through the wife. So there's all that process, which I, I'm sure we're all familiar with. Uh, with Roberto, we went through his family. There was a little bit of kind of back and forth, but yeah, he was like, okay, yeah, in principle, I'm up for it. We invited him to the UK to come and stay here for a couple of weeks with his family. So it's like, okay, we know he'll be in town. He can't run away from us. If I I had an idea, if I went to Panama, I'd probably spend six weeks there just trying to pin him down. So I was like, no, he's in London, he'll come. So that was okay. And then with Tommy, yeah, that was tricky because initially we were going through a friend and then the friend, you know, we met Tommy, but then Tommy was hesitant and, you know, all the usual things, which I, I completely get. I hate being on camera. I haven't, achieved anything like these guys and i understand that they might think they they get to do it once maybe like for for a bigger documentary so why these guys you know if you don't have a relationship with them so there was a little bit of hesitancy and then luckily we met jackie i think she was the first interview we did i think she she came in just before teddy and she said look i can i'll talk to tommy i'll, I'll get him to come around you know you guys seem okay so she more or less frog marched him into the studio <laughs> <laughs> which is very sweet to see, especially because she, she barely reaches his knees. Um, neither do I. And then with the other two, so then we were talking to Marvin Hagler's, uh, I think his representative, and it all looked pretty good. And then he was coming to Scotland, so we were going to do it there. Then the timing wasn't good. Then COVID hit, so we couldn't do it. Then we were supposed to be going over to see Leonard, and it was the same thing with COVID. So at a certain point someone must have spoken to him or Ray decided that he'd rather do his own thing. So maybe he's doing his own documentary or maybe he's, you know, that's the thing. It's like, I don't feel like I've got any foregone right to go in there and, you know, tell someone's story. It's up to them. But luckily by that stage, we had so much great archive and so many good interviews that I felt like, okay, if we get the chance to interview either of them, amazing, but we can do it without them. So I kind of knew by that point. But the process of sitting in with Duran and with Tommy was surreal. First of all, because obviously they're legends and they're both larger than life in different ways. It was tricky because we, I went into that first, session going well i know that he struggles sometimes with speech i don't know how this is going to come out i don't know what his memory is like you know i'd asked him a few questions before when we met the first time and he was like it was a little bit hazy so i just came really fully armed with everything and sometimes he would go no i don't think that ever happened i'm like no honestly it did <laughs> and then we go okay fine and then you have to kind of talk him back into it which is fine and then with Roberto, you know, I was lucky because I I speak Spanish, so we could speak, you know, speak in his language. It was that was all fine. I mean, he's hilarious. He is a little bit like Liam Gallagher. He's like the boxing boxing world's Liam Gallagher because he's like a fire rocket. So there's nothing that's out of bounds. You know, I would start asking him crazy questions and he'd give me crazy answers. And he didn't he didn't take offense in anything. Whether it's something like no mass, which he, I'm sure he's been asked a million million times, he would sit there and he, it wasn't like he was just giving stock answers. He'd think about it. I'd ask him again. I'd say someone said this he would you know he, it was a conversation rather than just him reeling off anecdotes and you know he'd talk about his private life he'd talk about all kinds of things which i think a lot of other people would be more guarded about he's just a very 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 funny guy you know talking about uh, these bands as well he's he's hilarious like he's a great raconteur so you just let him do his thing yeah i was you know you're pretty intimidated when you go into the room for the first time and you think I'm sitting down, we're going to sit down for three or four hours now for this first session. And if they take offense, maybe that's the end of the interview. We got, we don't have a film. So yeah, you never really know how it's going to go. Two things jump out from what you just said. Number one, you guys had a huge budget. You were able to fly Duran over to you to control their environment, which was genius. And then the second one was because you didn't bring Sugar Ray or sit down Marvin. So it ended up working out in my opinion, because I never knew, you know, just listening to him like, oh, you had to get Sugar Ray. You had so much sound from Sugar Ray, like you had to get him. So it kind of worked out. Yeah, I think so. I mean, it was, it was interesting. I, you know, obviously from a personal point of view, I would love to have spent time with those guys. The great thing about Ray is that he's been so unbelievably open and honest about his life, the, all the ups and downs in his career. And, he, and he's very eloquent. So there was so much good material. But Marvin does fewer interviews and he's actually very charismatic and very and, and he's great raconteur. But he didn't, for whatever reason, maybe because his popularity just was never at the same level as, as Leonard. There's less stuff to, to work with him. So I was really keen to try and give him his, his chance to shine. And we managed to find enough. What was frustrating was like, he ended up doing a lot of podcasts towards the end of his life where like the sound's terrible and people walking in and out and you can't hear what he's saying and they're asking him stupid questions. I was like, oh, you know, that's, it's his life. You never feel like I have the right to tell anyone's story. It's, it's up to them. I always feel like if I could just spend five minutes talking to them as opposed to the 400 people in between you and them. But maybe I'm naive. Maybe they've just been like, not interested. I, I, I don't know. The tricky thing, I found this with bands, especially very big bands, is that it's a bit like trying to talk to Bill Gates. There's like 400 people before you get to Bill Gates. And if you could just talk to the chief, 
I'm sure it would be fine. But it, yeah, that's never the case. Hagler passed away earlier this year. Was that a shock to the system? What was your reaction to his passing? Yeah, it was a, a massive shock. It was really sad. I mean, I think, you know, he was someone who seemed like he was full of life. He was living a great retirement in Italy. He seemed to have, like, he seemed to have it all. Like, he was the one guy who got out in time. He seemed fit and healthy. He was, he was young. I, it's just, it's bizarre. I think, if, you know, if, you, if you'd been thinking about it, you'd never have guessed that it would have been him of those four guys. Um, you know, this is the way it works out. It's very sad. I would have... Just selfishly, I would have loved to have shown him the show. That was, I think, the last bit of correspondence we had. We were like, look, we're going to almost finish the show and we'll let you, we'll screen it for you. We'll come over and, and you can watch it and then see if you've got anything you want to add. And then we heard that he passed away, you know, so I, I was, yeah, it was very sad. And he was obviously someone who was very loved. I don't know whether, I think that chip on the shoulder that we that people talk about in the show, I think it was something that he never really felt like he was valued the way he deserved to be. I'm sure he would have been very moved to see all the reaction to his passing, you know, it's one thing that obviously no one ever gets to do. But I wish he could have seen some of that adulation because, you know, there was always that part of him feeling like, well, he was never Ray Leonard. But that's fine because he was Marvin Hagler. It didn't matter. He was someone, something very different. Everyone who talks about him talks about his integrity. Obviously, he's an incredible boxer, but he was someone who was decent in a quite a dirty business. There were so many anecdotes we had, which I wish we had time to include, but that final fight with him and Leonard, he gets offered the chance for much more money than he than the purse he was being offered, which is already astronomic anyway. They said, look, ditch your managers, ditch the manager and your trainer, the Petronellis, and we'll give you much more money and you can come and do it this way. And he got so angry. He was like, right, the fight's over. I'm not doing it. And, and I'm quitting the business. He was just someone like, it was never about the money. I think it was about the money with that final fight, just in terms of bragging rights. Of like, I don't even care how much the purse is. It's just going to be more than Leonard. You know, there was that kind of sense of like, I just need to be valued the way I deserve. You know, it's tragic. I think it's um, it's, it's too soon for him to go. I'm from New England, so Hagler was growing up. He was legend there. He was he was a legend. No, he was amazing. He was amazing, and he really did have it hard. You know, I think he had to come up the hard way, and it's just the way the business was. I don't I don't know why because it's funny. I guess just you have to think your way back into that time. He's smart. He's good looking. He's charismatic, but he's not Ali, and he's not Leonard. I think there's something about him that's not sellable at that time or not considered to be box office. Whereas now, I think if he was coming up now, it would be a different story, probably. One thing that happened after his death was they showed the first round of that Hagler Hearns uh, fight. And so as I'm watching the documentary, I'm waiting for that. Like, I'm waiting for that buildup. I mean, you have, what, nine classic fights and that's one of them and i thought you did a great job of building up to that had you ever seen that fight had you ever seen that first round and what did you think of that explosiveness that just happened in those three minutes it's nuts it's nuts i i'd seen it once you know like kind of drunk with friends at someone's house like oh, you gotta watch this you gotta watch this and you're watching like Whoa, you know watching it on youtube i'd never seen it the way it deserved i mean it was it's crazy. It's devastating. And I think the way that people talk about that fight is like it's arguably the greatest first round, certainly in that division ever, which is which is amazing. But, you know, going back to what we were talking about in the, at the beginning, it's like, can you really understand what's at stake for those two fighters without getting into the history of Newark and Detroit and the uprisings and all these kind of things? That's why the more that we got into it, I was like, OK, that it kind of makes sense. I think our, the way that we're going about it makes sense because you know, I think if we'd just gone for pure sport and then you and you watch that fight, of course, it's devastating. It's 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 incredible. But you don't really understand why it's so important to these two guys and why they're this kind of symbolic figures for their community and what they've been through. Again, we had in longer cuts, we made more of that. You know, you hear all the story of how Marvin had to hide on the floor because of the bullets coming through the windows, all these things. I mean, it's it's crazy. That's comparable in some ways to what Duran had to go through in Panama, living literally living as street kids. So I think there was a lovely sequence we used to have in the show all these bits that I start remembering now that we, we cut Duran is talking about how you know he said you can't be a true champion unless you've experienced real adversity and real poverty and you know I was putting that to Teddy Teddy was like well what about this guy and this guy you know you can I'm sure you can pull out a few, a few exceptions but generally speaking it's like you have to have gone through something that forges you in that way that gives you that determination so that when you see Leonard at the end of the first Leonard Hearns fight you look he looks ruined like he's devastated he's saying himself he's got nothing left and he comes back and the guy is almost twice his size. It's just like, it seems impossible. It's a real David and Goliath moment. And you just, you can't believe it even as you're watching it. So yeah, I think they all had that secret ingredient, but it seemed to have been forged out of something, you know, of that those tough times. Yeah, I think, you know, with us being around the same age and growing up during that time, we knew about those fighters. We knew about those kings, but we didn't really know all the details that went into it. I didn't realize Ray Leonard had retired two or three times. I didn't realize 
Duran fought Leonard again for a third time, 89, I believe. So I feel like there was enough time that passed by that now when you reflect and deep dive into that era of those great fighters, you really got to see the history of these four boxers, these four guys. And I think for me, that was what was most powerful about it is that I really got to see all the fights and what had happened and then the history behind it. I mean, it was just really fantastic job. Uh, just Thank you. you on that. Thank you so much. Well, no, I had this, I exactly the same thing. I, most of my friends who are about my age, they, they just didn't know much about this era. Like everyone knows Ali inside out. They've watched a hundred Ali documentaries and everyone knows Tyson inside out. But for whatever reason, the lighter weights don't seem to have survived in, in popular imagination, certainly in the UK anyway. I just felt like they needed to be reintroduced to another generation. Yeah. There's a lot of stuff in there politically. You know, I think I'm sure that a lot of people in the US remember Reagan in different ways and remembered Carter in different ways, but for me, it was important to kind of create that and just be able to take you back to that time because it's, it's suddenly so evocative. And the fact that you then see these each of these fighters in the White House, in the Oval Office, shaking hands, it's kind of nuts. You know, you just, you can't believe these guys are at that level, but they really are. They did capture the imagination in a way that I think it's hard to kind of imagine for boxing now. It's a, it's a whole different sport, really. Back then, that's what people did. You know, even your grandmother knew who the heavyweight champion of the world was. Whereas now there's so many different divisions and so many competing titles, I think it's harder. Absolutely. I love the quotations at the start of each chapter, especially the Frederick Douglass one. You know, it's easier to build strong children than to repair broken men. My question to you is, how did you pick which one to use and why was it important for you to include them? Yeah, I think what I wanted to try and do with the quotations was just um, give a sense of the theme of each episode. So we really lost our way in the woods a few times and we were like, I don't know what the hell we're making. <laughs> and we would, you know, we were sitting there kind of throwing everything in it because it could be anything. You know, the poor archive team, when I first gave them a brief, I was like, well, we need everything about the four kings, but we need everything about Ali, but we also need everything about Tyson. But then we also need everything about politics, but we also need the 70s and the 90s. And it was just like, it was nuts. And at a certain point, we all went a bit crazy. And so... One of the editors, Ian, was like, I need to try and theme my episode. And I, because otherwise, I'm, I just don't, I don't know what I'm doing. And so he was like, Okay, I think my episode needs to be about the relationship between um, fathers and sons. You know, when we look at boxers, because often they don't have fathers. And so then who are the surrogate fathers? So that was kind of his theme. It's like, Okay, that's great. Well, maybe the first episode is the end of one era and the beginning of another. And I thought, Well, maybe if we can put them in, if it doesn't feel too pretentious, we can put quotes at the beginning, which kind of give you a, a sense of what the theme of the episode going to be yeah it was tricky because you don't want to make it too highbrow like i remember the third episode is really about the connection between poverty and violence and ian put in like a mahatma gandhi quote and i was like that's too much i think i think people, <laughs> people are gonna start laughing at this but yeah when i found the frederick Douglass quote i mean i'd read some i'd had a book of of some of his like kind of excerpts from some of his writing and i was thinking would he be someone who might have written about this and then you start googling and i was going through my old books and stuff and i was thinking like he'd be great and we had a, like a short list of people who would be suitable people for quotations and then i thought oh maybe the boxers should be just doing the quotes and so we have one would be leonard and then i thought well actually it's not like we have a leonard episode and a hearns episode that's going to be misleading so yeah we just we kind of went around the houses but bud schulberg one that starts episode one when i, I remember reading that because i I'd, I'd only really known Bud Schulberg as a, as a screenwriter when like on the waterfront and, and so on. And, and I love those films. And then I remember reading some, my dad was into boxing and I remember I had a book of his sports writing and I was flicking through that. And I was like, I just, that quote that says, you know, this thing about the love and hate in boxing, the more I hate it, you know, the more I love it. And, and I think there was something about it that I was like, okay, that is kind of how I feel about boxing. And I feel like that's what we end up trying to express at the end of episode one. Like I can't, it was interesting. The first question I asked every single interviewee was like, okay, Boxing is incredibly controversial. It's incredibly loved. Let's give it its day in court. Tell me, tell me how you feel about it genuinely. And every single one of them, from Jackie to Teddy to Tommy to Roberto, everyone was pretty conflicted about it, which I found interesting. I thought a few of them would be like, oh, screw everyone else. Boxing's amazing. You know, who are these, these people who are really idiots? And actually everyone was like, look, I, I get it. I get that it's problematic, but look at look at it's, it's transformed my life and look at the skill and look at the way it's transformed these boxers' lives, you know. So I think what I loved about those quotes was that hopefully it's a way in for the, the viewer to kind of feel like, okay, we're, we're talking about, this is this is going to be big. This is going to be an epic story. And then you booked it with a cliffhanger at the end and Teddy nailed it at the end of chapter one. He nailed the cliffhanger for you. And I was like, damn, that was good. Again, like it was written. So that, <laughs> that, that was really, really well done. Oh yeah, God bless Teddy. He was amazing. Yeah, he, every time he said anything, it was funny because when I came back, 
back, even from the first interview, we only had 60 minutes of stuff. And the editors, we had four editors, they were fighting over Teddy's stuff. No, I want it. I'm having that. They all put all his, his stuff up front. And then I felt like, okay, well, maybe he should be our narrator in that way because it seemed to work so well to just to have 30 seconds of Teddy to set, they can outline what we're going to talk about. And it's like, okay, that's, that's great. Then you can all have Teddy. Don't worry about it. No one has to get hurt. Like your interviews, I think we could go another hour about the Kings. <laughs> And amazingly, we didn't really talk about much boxing for that deep dive into the Kings. So I think that's apropos for the film, which delved into a lot of different topics sure. throughout the narrative. Yeah, but, no, I, I get it. I mean, it's, it's funny because that's what I love about these guys. There's so much you can talk about without even getting into their sporting careers. Their, their lives are so rich. Uh, we'll get in a few quick hitters and then get you out of here. For our listeners, for someone who wants to make a documentary, what would be your one piece of advice? I suppose... You know, with, with dramas and documentaries, it's just the more self-sufficient you can be, the better. So I think I, when I was starting out, I just, you know, I kind of taught myself at a very basic level how to use a camera, how to edit, and I started writing myself. And so I feel like even if you're not the world's greatest cinematographer, then when you're working with the world's greatest cinematographer, you know what to ask them and you know what's possible and you know how far to push them and so on. Especially with documentary now, I think people are used to seeing things that are a little bit rough around the edges. So the first few things that I made were, you know, they were a little bit loose and a bit shambolic. There was a kind of essence of something there and you learn by trying and failing and repeating. And like anyone with a phone now can make a documentary. I would just get out there and start making stuff. You know, I think it's the same way. I remember when I was growing up, Robert Rodriguez released a book which is all about how, you know, how to go and make a film. And his thing was like, if you're Jimi Hendrix, you don't walk out on the stage of Woodstock without ever having picked up a guitar before. You play until your fingers bleed in your own garage and you make all your mistakes and then you become the greatest guitarist of all time. But somehow filmmaking, at least in the past, never went, it was so expensive, no one got a chance to practice. So you would make one film and it would be a disaster because you'd never done it before. And that was it. And that was the end of your career. So I think now people get the chance to kind of make those mistakes privately. And so just go out there and make it and then kind of find your voice. What films did you love growing up? Everything, like ev absolutely everything. I'm, I'm a, an omnivore. I loved a lot of American cinema. I mean, my dad was really into kind of gangster films. My mom was into like French New Wave and Italian, you know, neorealist films. And so I had a real like eclectic bunch of things, but I was just desperate for anything I could watch. And I feel the same, the same thing with music. Like I don't really have a, a type of music. I think in the old days, people were much more tribal with what like, okay, if you're into, I don't know, if you're into gangster rap, there's no way you could like, country and western music or whatever whereas i think people are getting a little bit more open now i loved everything so i think for a long time my favorite film was probably one flew of the cuckoo's nest which is probably still my favorite film but then it would probably change any hour of the day depending on how i was feeling or who was asking you know it's the same with your favorite sports star or your same with your favorite band right yeah i used to love everything a lot of american cinema growing up i don't know why but that was the stuff that i gravitated towards it was just harder back then because you know if a film was coming on in your local cinema, it was like you got one shot at seeing it and then it was never going to play again. And the same thing with TV. It's like now we have everything at the, at the touch of a button, uh, but when we don't have any time to watch any of it or we can't be bothered to watch it for more than five minutes before flicking channels. But, you know, back then it's like I would hear there was this film called Touch of Evil or Citizen Kane and I'd read a book on it. And then three years later, it's like, oh, it's playing at two in the morning. Right. And I have to stay up and press record on the VCR. But then at least you appreciate it more. Right. Funniest or most embarrassing thing to happen to you on set? God, yeah. I mean, I've had I've had all sorts of encounters and uh, and things that come up. I mean, on the dramas, it's funny because yeah, going back to what we were saying, especially when you're young and you're starting out and you don't really know what you're doing, like you've got an idea of, of what you want to try and communicate, and especially when it's personal stuff. I wrote a, a film about my dad. My dad had Alzheimer's, like early onset Alzheimer's, and so he he died. And I made a film about what had happened to him. I wrote this story, and we got Ray Winston and Jim Sturgis to be in it. So it was like this amazing cast, and we made it, and it was very low budget, but I. We, we got to make it. Ray Winston is like the loveliest person on the planet. He's so kind. He would just, he took it on board. He chaperoned the whole thing. He made it happen. But also he's Ray Winston and he has a reputation for being, you know, he plays all these gangsters and villains and you would never want to cross him. And I remember on the final day of the shoot, it was a really, like really tricky shoot. Every single day was like, we, if it's in focus, we've got to move on. We've got no time. Like we've got three weeks to shoot this thing. And he was doing his death scene and the guys, you know, I've got the, the AD tapping me on the shoulder going, we've got to get, we've got to move on. We've got to move on. We're missing next scene kind of thing. I was like, look, this is Ray's scene. We've got to let him do his thing. So Ray does it once. And 
was like, God, okay, we've got to let him do it again. So he does it a second time. And then there's like the third time, I like, I was like, we're only missing one bit. Like he's nailed all of it, but there's just one bit where the camera was moving and we didn't quite get it. So I know I need this one line. And you can hear apparently the editors when they were listening to it, they were just laughing because you can hear hear me in the back and go, okay, Ray, we're just going to do one bit. It's just for one thing. And I kind of talking through it and he's, he's doing his death scene. And then he says the line and he does it perfectly. And so I'm like, okay, Ray, we're going to move on. That's great. And he goes, I'm not finished. I went, okay, Ray. You can hear my voice go about seven octaves. And he's like, okay, Ray, what do you want? So every time I would ask for anything, I would go, okay, Matt. It's, uh, no problem. No problem. I didn't come up with you any dignity. Yeah, yeah. You just keep going all day, Ray. You do your thing. You do it again. <laughs> you used to be a boxer as well, right? So um, you to be careful. Best Coldplay story. This is not a kind of like a fun story. This is kind of sad, but actually I, I do feel like in some ways they cut, they have saved my life on a couple of occasions. Talking about my dad, there was a period in my life where I was trying to get this film together and I just couldn't get it together. I'm someone who's pretty level-headed. And I've always been very positive and I've always, and I've had a you know very privileged life in many ways, but there was just something about, you know, he died. We couldn't get the money together for the film. And I really felt like my, like my brain just went like off on a different tangent. And I really lost the plot. And I got to a point when I was really like struggling. And and then at one point I kind of went, moved back in with my my mom's house and I couldn't get out of bed. Even looking back on it now, there's no way I could even imagine that might've happened to me, but it's like my brain just wasn't functioning anymore. I think it was like the grief had finally come full circle. And I felt like in my, my brain had obviously decided that the only way I could honor his legacy was to make this film and I couldn't make the film. Like we just couldn't get the money to make the film and I couldn't get out of bed. And then I got this call from Chris one day saying, what are you doing? Right. You need to come and make a music video for us. And he didn't even know he was doing it. And then just somehow I was like, okay, right. Just, uh, he, he said like, you're just going to come over to London and we're going to do it. And I, I think he can kind of sense that I wasn't in great shape, but he was like, no, 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 you're going to do it anyway. And so I got out of bed just to go and make this video. We made this Christmas video. And at the end of the process of making the video, it was like, it was hellish. We were trying to do it as one shot. Everything went wrong. The piano, it was, piano was like a kind of magic piano that was playing on its own. There was this piece of machinery that didn't work. Everything went wrong. It starts snowing in the middle of the tape. And at the end, we kind of finished it. And I just felt all right. I felt like, okay, I'm out of bed. <laughs> And then the next day we found out we were making the film with Ray Winston. There's plenty of like happy memories of, of Coldplay, but that was one where I was just like, I don't think I've ever even told them, but they basically saved my life. And there was a couple of other times when they kind of done that as well. Yeah. And they ended up putting up some of the money for the film. So that's how we got it made. So yeah. God bless Teddy and God bless Chris Martin. My last question. I think I read somewhere that you worked with Jay-Z. Is that I true? Did. Or was that yes, like? that is true. Well, well, that was amazing. That was amazing. I mean, talk about, again, meeting your heroes. Yeah, I mean, for me, Jay-Z is one of those people like he's like Bob Dylan. He doesn't I can't really imagine they actually exist it's like him or, or like Father Christmas. Like the idea that they would actually walk around on this planet and you might meet them is just impossible. And so what happened was, again, it was one of those those crazy Coldplay situations where they wrote the song Lost. And then because um, Chris and Jay were friends, I don't know how it came about, but Jay had written these lyrics and he, he ended up rapping on top of the the track and it became they released it as a new track this collaboration and so Chris sent it to me and was like um he rang me up and he did this kind of like what are you up to tomorrow and I was like oh well it's, you know I'm a bit busy and he was like no oh, okay don't worry about it and I, before I hung up I was like well, what, 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 do you, what do you need me for he's like no nothing it's just can you go over I need you to fly to New York tomorrow morning and go go to Jay's house because um you just need to go and film him in his in his house uh, you know doing doing these lines I was like I'm there don't worry about it I'll sort it out and then I I got on the plane arrived over there and they were like actually no you need to go into a recording studio because this he's got family over or something so we went into this studio we've got this film studio and we waited and he was due like they said oh he'll be with you at 10 and then 10 was like 11 it was like 12 it was like one i was thinking i've got to catch the next flight out of six i was like he's not coming and then i, I went upstairs i was just having a coffee and then the runner the assistant runs up and he's like all breathless like jay-z's here jay-z's in the house <laughs> so we went downstairs and i'd been told i had him for four hours so i was like okay great so we had all these ideas we had three cameras i was on one of the cameras and the two camera guys i don't know where they were they were somewhere else in the building and i said so jay how how long do we have you for and he was like 10 minutes i was like and I was like, okay, fine, fine, fine. Couldn't find anyone. So I just grabbed the camera. I was like filming him, you know, and I said, like, do you need the lyrics? He's like, no, 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 don't worry about that. And we just filmed him a few times and he was so sweet and so courteous and so down to earth. And I remember the last thing I got him doing, we, we did the performance like three or four times and he nailed it every single time, of course, because he's Jay-Z. At the end of that, I was like, Jay, I don't know. I think I kind of need some shots of you just looking amazing because you just stand there and look cool. And I think a lot of other people were like, what are you talking about? But Jay was like, okay. he just did a few things like taking his shades down, looking around, 
touching his chin. And he just looked mate, like everything he did was incredible. And then he's like, you got it? I was like, looking, you know, my heart was going. And I was like, yeah, yeah, I think we got it. And he was like, okay, great. And then he went around the building and he made sure he sh- like shook hands with every single person from the guy who was like security to the runner and everyone. Made sure everyone got their moment with him. And then, and then he left and he was gone. He was in, in and out of the building in about 20 minutes. It was amazing. That's a, that's and I was cool. checking, I was after just checking the camera, just making sure we got it. Like we definitely got it. Yeah, yeah, yeah we got it. Was that yeah. billionaire Jay-Z or what? what this was, was when's this? This is like so it was the Viva La Vida Coldplay era. So this must be like 10 years ago, something like that. So um yeah, I guess he was he was getting there by then, wasn't he? Yeah, almost, almost. pretty billionaire, but almost yeah. there. Last question for me. First concert, best concert. First concert and best concert. First concert I ever went to see was, I think, was Radiohead in Oxford because they're they're an Oxford band. So we were lucky. We used to get to see these young bands just starting out. So there's Radiohead, there was Supergrass, there was another band called Ride that uh, we used to go and see. Yeah, so seeing Radiohead with like 30 people in the room, that was pretty nuts. Best concert I've ever been to, probably going to see the Argentine crowds at a Coldplay gig. Because I know that like Coldplay have their super fans and they've got their detractors and, and uh, you know, like a lot of big bands, like, people love them and they hate them. But I feel like you had, you don't, you can't really say you know Coldplay until you see them live. And their gigs are just like watching Close Encounters or something like a space landing or something. It is nuts. And the pyrotechnics and the band are just amazing. And But then the reaction from the fans in, in Argentina, in any Latin American country really, is just nuts. They're going crazy by the first, like when the, when the lights go up at the beginning and there's grown men in tears on the front row and they're kissing each other it's it's fantastic i think it would probably be the first no the last night on the head for the dreams tour which was the last tour they did it was mind-blowing and my my kids we were in argentina i was there filming and i brought my kids out and it was their their first gig too it was pretty special great story matt we appreciate your time amazing conversation thank you for this deep dive into you know your past and all your great work and uh, we really appreciate it thank you so much it was a real pleasure thanks for having me on wow what a deep dive into the creative genius of matt whitecross we appreciate all the insights that he gave us please subscribe rate and review the show and if you do we'll give you a big shout out if you like what you heard please share with your friends we'll be back next week with another great episode of beyond the lens and that's a wrap